I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December. Now, May, May, when uh, much to my surprise, a pair of bunny eyes. Oh, this is a neat way to travel. Isn't it great? On December 11, 1972, Apollo 17 crew members landed on our moon's surface. Commander Gene Cernan and Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Schmidt stepped out of the Lunar Lander Challenger in the Taurus Littrow Valley near Camelot Crater. What you just heard were these two astronauts singing together as they explored the lunar surface. Forty-nine years later, no other person has eclipsed their accomplishments, and no one else has set foot on the moon since then. However, Schmidt and all of us, excited by the idea of space travel and exploration, are looking forward to that fact changing very soon. With NASA preparing to return astronauts to the moon as soon as 2025, commercial space travel becoming a reality, and plans to study exoplanets across the galaxy, an era of space exploration we can hardly even comprehend is just over the horizon. I'm Paul McFarland, director of the Fleischmann Planetarium and Science Center, here with my wonderful co-host, Wendy Calvin, the O'Keefe Professor for the Mackey School, foundation professor and chair of the Department of Geological Sciences and Engineering. Wendy is a member of NASA's Mars Exploration Rover Science Team and has studied planets and moons for much of her illustrious career. Thank you, Paul. On this episode of Discover Science, we are thrilled to be speaking with astronaut Harrison Schmidt, about his three days on the lunar surface, the exciting geological discoveries that he made as the only true scientist to have set foot on the moon, and his thoughts about the future of space exploration. Welcome, Dr. Schmidt. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, I know uh, many of our students are curious about what it would be like to actually be on the moon. Only 12 people have ever visited. If you were going to describe that experience. Could you share that? Well, first, just understand what your constraints are. Well, you start with the constraint of time. Uh, uh, time is relentless, as uh, my uh, backup commander on 15 used to say, uh, Dick Gordon. Uh, and uh, secondly, that, that is uh, made more rel relentless by the spacesuit. The Apollo uh, spacesuit that we had, uh, the last three missions had what was called the A7LB spacesuit, much more capable than the, uh, what Neil Armstrong had. But never, nevertheless, it was constraining. Uh, you, could, you, you couldn't act normally in it. We also had on the positive side a uh, Block II lunar module. You had to in order to use that suit because uh, you needed more oxygen. It, it had a uh, really an eight-hour capability rather than a four, uh, which the original suits had. Uh, and uh, one of the big things you needed was cooling water. Uh, if you didn't have water-cooled underwear, you wouldn't be able to work very long on the moon. Uh, if you relied on gas cooling, it would not have, have worked very much. Uh, but the uh, A7LB spacesuit was really uh, very capable, uh, but still constraining. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the other thing you have to remember, you're working in one-sixth gravity, uh, one-sixth of Earth gravity. Uh, and that can be a blessing and a, <laughs> and a constraint as well. Uh, it, uh, it means that you don't get as physically tired 
as you would here on Earth and would in that suit. Uh, but it also uh, means that you have to be very careful about where your center of gravity is. Uh, the, the backpack we had moved the center of gravity of the combined body and, and backpack about two inches to the rear. And if you look at films, you'll see astronauts, Buzz Aldrin or almost anybody leaning forward. Well, that's to get the center of gravity over your feet. But then if you get into a dynamic situation, such as I did in, trying, in helping uh, uh, Gene Cernan extract the core, you can uh, forget that you will rotate around that center of gravity if you get too, uh, too vigorous. I found that w moving across the surface any distance was best accomplished by applying what I call a cross-country skiing technique. <laughs> I had, and as a Fulbright student in Norway, I had uh, taken up uh, cross-country skiing, and, and it just is a very efficient way to move across the snow well, I, you, on the moon, you glide above the surface and use your toe to just accelerate a little bit. And without any atmosphere or any friction on the surface, you can keep accelerating as long as you can coordinate that toe push. <laughs> and and uh, some of the pictures that you see, you see me using that technique, particularly sort of late in the EVA coming from Station 9 through a boulder field is really a, a good illustration of how, how cross-country skiing works on the moon. I never could convince my colleagues that uh, this was a more efficient way to do it. But I hope in the future uh, that people realize that, uh, that rather than hopping or, or just trying to run, uh, you, there are more efficient the ways ski to ski technique. Uh, right. Well, you probably technique. didn't anticipate that a ski technique you learned in grad school <laughs> was no, going to be useful no. on the moon. <laughs> no, and right? I, didn't, I really didn't anticipate doing it until I was there and realized that it was the best way to move. But uh, that, uh, uh, we worked on three EVAs for about extravehicular activities. Uh, we worked for about seven and a half hours uh, full speed before we got into the, uh, uh, actually started to repressurize the, the lunar module. Uh, there was a reserve, as you might expect, in case there were any problems. Uh, but uh, we ended up with a total of over 22 hours of exploration time. Doesn't sound like much, maybe, but uh, I'll tell you, in lunar terms, that was uh, able to get an awful lot done. We brought back 250 pounds of, of soil and rocks. Every time I sit down and start to work on the synthesis project that I have, I come across something new that I can tie together, and it's just really, really this amazing sample collection, amazing sample collection. Before I forget, I was going to ask, because uh, we were talking about coming in from the EVA and, and, and all those sort of things. We've heard that when you were taking off the, the spacesuits, you could smell the moon. Is that correct? Was there a distinct smell yes, of the moon? Yes, the fine particles of the uh, lunar regolith and they are very fine. I have a, an aroma very much like spent gunpowder. Mm. Everybody had the same uh, uh, <laughs> impression. Uh, and I think it's because they're not fully uh, deactivated yet. It's, it's like activated carbon. Uh, and uh, it hasn't absorbed enough of the moisture and the oxygen in the cabin mm -hmm. to cease to activate your olfactory senses. Mm -hmm. And so it, it has that same kind of uh, smell, you know, like spent gunpowder, wow. freshly spent gunpowder. 
And there's all kinds of different questions, but I guess I'm curious, what were you most excited about during this adventure that you participated in? Well, of course, I had been involved in the preparation of the other crews for all the missions. Uh, in fact, uh, after my pilot training in 1966 was complete, uh, and I was in residence then at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, uh, I was able to uh, really take a hard look at their training program for lunar exploration. Mm -hmm. And uh, I already was pretty much aware of what, they, what was being done and it was basically show and tell GE-1 field trips. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't in my mind going to be sufficient for the, uh, the true exploration of the moon and for getting a, a very broad spectrum of samples back. And so I'm, I put together a proposal and took it to Al Shepard, who was my boss at the time, and uh, said, let's do a simulation-based training. That is, let's go out on real geological problems once a month, spend four or five days with the equipment that they would have on their mission, and have each crew then begin to absorb real geology and, how, and the techniques for actual exploration. And he said, well, if you can convince Jim Lovell, who was up next for Apollo 13, uh, to be the guinea pig uh, for this program, then fine. So I went to Jim, and Jim was very enthusiastic. He, he, uh, as you know, Apollo 13 did not land on the moon, but right. he was very enthusiastic about the training. And he and Fred Hayes uh, joined uh, Professor Lee Silver as their mentor, which I asked Lee to to join into this program. Uh, part of the program was to have each crew have an outside mentor and who was an outstanding field geologist. And, uh, and we went out for a full week in the Oracopia Mountains of California without phones, without any contact, and just had these guys absorb what geology was all about and, and how to observe, uh, what to observe, how to make decisions on what might be important and what wouldn't be important. That was the whole object of it. And, and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes became very enthusiastic. And it turns out their uh, backup crew was John Young and Charlie Duke, who eventually flew on Apollo 16. And so four of the, of the people who, who were going to land on the moon were part of that initial program. Uh, the, uh, uh, it worked out very well. And when you look at the 850 pounds of lunar rocks that were brought back by the astronauts, uh, we have a gift that just keeps on giving. Uh, and as you are probably aware, NASA just released some of the samples that had been frozen for 50 yep. years yep. Uh, for analysis. I'm involved in that with the University of New Mexico, uh, and the, the leader of that whole effort is at the University of Mexico, uh, Charles Scherer. Uh, we are uh, in the process of uh, not only looking at uh, all the frozen samples, but in particular, a drive tube core of 70 centimeters length, that half of which was frozen, uh, that I took in an avalanche deposit, a dust avalanche deposit, uh, at uh, near the base of the uh, one of the of the highest mountains in the valley area, about 2,000 meters high. Uh, uh, really, we were in a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon, and really a magnificent place to be. But the sample collection continues to be remarkable. And, and what new things are you seeing? I, I, I know that there's just been a huge revolution in the um, 
the technology and the instrumentation and the high resolution stuff we can do now. So are you, are you seeing well, new what, and interesting what, things? In, yes, in these, very much so, so far. And a, the effort's been going on now for a couple of years. We just opened up the drive tube core. Okay. Uh, people sort of assumed that the core was one unit and with some variable variability in it. Well, it turns out it's probably 14 units that can be identified uh, specifically on the basis of their mat different maturities, uh, different petrographic characteristics, uh, their so it's not chemical just a composition. Brecciation of the surface. No, it's, it's, it's not just a brecciation. Surface fact is that's minor. Huh. What is what has happened is that impacts elsewhere have sent ejecta over that is overlaid, okay. and so you've okay. got a so you you, you've got a library layers. of lunar history that turns out is probably about two billion years long. Interesting. Did your approach or understanding to field geology change once you were on the moon? Um, or did you feel that the, the field training programs that you had provided for the astronauts were, were good um, or good enough for them to actually do decent field geology without being geologists? Yeah, the, the main thing we were trying to get uh, instilled in the uh, crews was how to recognize diversity and important diversity. Mm -hmm. And I think in that it worked because that the sample collection is really a remarkable collection. Uh, it, it, it depended somewhat on individual talents. Neil Armstrong was absolutely fantastic as, as an observer. He, uh, in 20 minutes, he probably brought back the best collection of samples per unit time of anybody, including myself. Uh, and uh, and uh, one of his, uh, samples, uh, which was uh, soil, he collected because he thought, as he said, that the rock box looked a little empty after he put rocks in it. <laughs> and he just filled it, <laughs> he up, just with filled lunar, it up with lunar, lunar, soil. lunar soil. And that's that particular sample, 10084, a lot <laughs> of us know, uh, is what is the foundation for understanding the resource potential of the moon. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, the analysis of that sample has given us uh, an understanding of how the solar wind volatiles are contained in the lunar surface, hydrogen, uh, from which then you can extract water uh, from the silicates. Uh, and, uh, but also, uh, it, it has told us about this uh, remarkable light isotope of helium called helium-3. Mm -hmm that uh, is potentially an answer to the long-term clean electrical power needs of the Earth. Energy is what's going to drive civilization uh, one way or the other. Either you have it and you're going to progress, if you don't have it, you're going to go backwards. Uh, and uh, the moon does offer us now a, a way of having clean energy, a, what we call aneutronic energy. That is fusion energy that doesn't produce neutrons. Uh, the neutrons are the bad actors. They create the radioactive waste. And that's, is that what you see as the primary resource for the moon? Well, I mean, it, these days it's a lot about the water, right? Well, so how do we sustain crews and astronauts as we think about sending well, people there? Um, I think water uh, is, is important, no question about it. You can derive oxygen from water. You can make water anywhere on the moon. You don't have to go to the poles to make water, to get water. If you heat the regolith, you're going to get water. Hydrogen will react with the silicates and you'll get water. Water is going to be very important for long-term sustainability on the moon. And if you're going to have actually transfer civilization to the moon, you're going to have to make water. 
The uh, helium-3 is probably the only resource we've identified so far that will pay to bring back to Earth. Uh, there's very little helium-3 on Earth, uh, certainly almost none uh, left over from uh, the formation of the Earth. Uh, it was rare to begin with, and, and it's just not practical to even think about that. But uh, the helium-3 we have for research today and for neutron detectors mm -hmm. at our borders is uh, derived from the decay of tritium which is a product of, uh, of uh, nuclear fission and is used in uh, nuclear weapons. And you have to, tritium decays over a period of about a little less than 13 years. And after a while, you gotta clean up your weapon or it's not gonna be effective. Uh, and you get, and by cleaning it up, you get some helium-3. There's, uh, there's some also produced in Canadian reactors. They have a particular uh, heavy water reactor technology that produces some helium-3. But the, the amount is, is, in, is really nowhere near what you need in order to have power. It's nowhere uh, near what you would need in order to use helium-3 as a, uh, a way of getting very high resolution lung images. Hmm. You can polarize helium-3, inhale it, and then when it depolarizes, you get a very fine image of the lungs. Hmm. Uh, most people don't realize that, uh, that only 19% or so of people who are diagnosed with lung cancer survive. If you can get early detection, that jumps up into the 90s. And that's what helium-3 would allow you to do, is get early detection of lung cancer. Now there is a, a companion element called xenon-129 that you also can po polarize, and that's being used instead of helium today, because helium-3 just isn't available. Uh, but it does a different thing. It gets into the bloodstream, into the capillaries. And so you see a different aspect of lung uh, uh, characteristics uh, with uh, xenon-129. The combination would just be remarkable in terms of detecting lung cancer. Well, certainly in your book, Return to the Moon, you explain a lot of benefits that would derive from uh, returning to the moon and, and tapping into the helium-3, the energy generation, or that solar power, or, or the, he, uh, the fusion, or the fission, or all the different possibilities. Um, I'm curious, uh, with that film that maybe some of our listeners have seen, Duncan Jones' film, Moon, they talk about mining helium-3 and using that, sending it back with the railgun. Are there real benefits for the Earth that is described uh, in that film or, or what you're describing here? Well, the con conceptually, the film is right on the mark. Uh, technically, the miners are a little <laughs> too big. <laughs> but the film really is a psychological film yes. more than it is a, a, te a technical film. But, uh, and I, I highly recommend it. I think it's a great film. Uh, another film that most people may not be aware of that's uh, uh, head, uh, centered in Australia is the film Dish. Have you ever seen that? Yes, yes. Uh, it's about one of the communication uh, antenna. It's really quite good. Uh, the, the uh, uh, no, I, I'm a great fan of the uh, Moon. It's was, it was a good, good film, but it also has an interesting psychological message with it. And we won't give it away. Okay, that's <laughs> right, that's right. Keep the secret on that one. Well, there's such a range of things. I know with the, the benefits in returning to the moon are, are immense. We had a, a, a 
teacher at our school that wanted to know why do we want to go back to the moon? And I know some Americans wonder that too. And you begin to unfold uh, some of the reasons here, and you've certainly done a very thorough job in your book about why why is that important uh, in in a variety of different ways, perhaps maybe energy, maybe other ways. Well, the primary reason for the United States to be active on the moon is geopolitical. Uh, and uh, I wish it were otherwise, but that's, uh, that's a, a real fact of life. Uh, China is on the way, and there's no question they're going to try and probably will succeed in establishing uh, themselves uh, on the moon. They're interested in helium-3, they've said they were, uh, as an energy source. Uh, and, uh, but it, it's a geopolitical issue, and space is part of Apollo. It was for Apollo, and it still is. Uh, the Apollo program was a, uh, a creature of the uh, Cold War, and, uh, and we, uh, I hope everybody recognizes that. It just also, you should recognize that there was leadership uh, in and out of NASA that knew that if you had the capability to land on the moon and to get outside a spacecraft, you had the capability of, of exploring and, and, and developing great scientific uh, insight. Uh, not only about the moon, uh, but uh, about the early history of the Earth. We now really do, I think, understand the environment in which life began on Earth. And that's only because we now see what happened on the moon. Uh, and uh, we also may well be on the way to doing something Gene Shoemaker always said we were going to do, and that is decipher the history of the sun. Uh, and particularly now that we, I, I think we, I can demonstrate that the, uh, the deep drill core is made up of, of, of individual regolith ejecta units, which give you a, a book, so to speak, several pages, 14 pages of a book of solar history. Uh, the only thing that is showing up so far in the synthesis that uh, may indicate uh, uh, the history of the sun is in the nitrogen isotope. Uh, ratios. Uh, and there's some indication that the sun went through a significant energy increase in its, in the solar wind at any rate, about uh, 500 million years ago. And, uh, and, and that is important to Earth geologists because we had about a little over 500 million years ago, we had what's called the Cambrian explosion. And that's uh, probably due, almost certainly due to a warming of the Earth's ocean to the point of where the diversity and the quantity of life really exploded over, really take several, off, yeah. over several tens of millions of years. Uh, but uh, still, uh, we, we may now be able to see independent evidence of that happening uh, because the sun increased its energy output. Um, I was going to come back to the, the geopolitics of the moon um, because at the same time we're seeing a ton of new um, commercial interest and um, the commercial lunar payload services program and and so it's becoming not just um, countries anymore that are going to the moon and wanting to go to the moon and and so i wonder if if you see a real lunar economy developing and and if so what would drive that what's going to make it profitable for commercial entities that also are now playing in the the lunar game that's an excellent question. Uh, the real difference between now and 50 years ago is that 
it's exactly what you say. There are entities you can, may or may not want to call them commercial. It depends on how much government money is supporting them. Uh, but uh, uh, that, uh, but there's a lot of private money being invested mm -hmm. in these companies, uh, and they uh, see that the resources, primarily to, I think their customer base is still being thought of as government, space stations, space uh, craft going to Mars that need oxygen, need water, and that kind of thing. I think that's still driving it primarily. Uh, but nevertheless, that exists today where it didn't exist 50 years ago. Uh, there are uh, rocket companies, again, with the government their primary customer, but nevertheless, they have developed their capabilities by themselves. The SpaceX, Blue Origin, and a, and a few others that uh, have not gone quite as far as those two. Uh, so uh, it is a different, it's a challenge for NASA, is to figure out how do I integrate this explosion of commercial technology uh, that has, has developed in a capitalistic mar marketplace, how do I integrate that with the geopolitical requirements that I have as a uh, government uh, agency and with responsibilities? Well, uh, I know as we were talking about the return to the moon, um, many of us wondered, we were getting excited about the Artemis program. What do you think about the prospects of NASA's upcoming return? And what are your thoughts about Artemis or the next generation of explorers? Well, I think it's great that uh, the Trump administration kicked that off and that it's continuing. Uh, budgetary issues are still there. Uh, and uh, I understand that there are some of the glowstones are slipping, as they so often do. Uh, and the, uh, but uh, still, uh, it's uh, critically important from a geopolitical point of view that we, uh, that uh, the United States participate in this, uh, in this space activity. The one thing that is missing, in my opinion, and I talk about this in the, in the book, is a Saturn V class booster. Uh, the SpaceX booster, the Blue Origin boosters are, are fine, they're nice, but they are not Saturn-class boosters. The, you cannot, with one booster, put a 37,000-pound uh, a payload called the lunar module on the surface of the moon. You just, it, uh, we just don't have that capability. The Chinese have, uh, have announced, whether, I don't know the details at all, there may not be any, but have announced that they're going for a Saturn-class booster. I, I guess I, I thought the Starship I think they read my chapter in the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess I thought the Starship was in that class, but maybe I don't know well, SpaceX's problem, launch uh, yeah, the problem, rockets. Uh, yeah. I, would, I would talk to Elon Musk about that, but and he would probably claim that it is, but it only is if you refuel it in Earth orbit 14 or more times. Okay. That's the difference. And it, which means that the risk management of a program that depends on Starship is much greater than it was even for the Saturn V and, and 50 years ago. So because uh, you're no, counting on those orbital assets to do the refueling and yeah, you have to right? launch you, you have yeah. to launch the fuel. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, certainly with an enterprise as big as going to the moon, we need to involve the community, and it's an opportunity for all of us to learn more about our place in space. Why would you say community engagement is important, and, and uh, what are good ways for us to try to do more community engagement? 
planetariums such as this are filling a gap that is huge, or trying to fill a gap that is absolutely huge. And that gap has been produced by the deterioration of the public education system. The uh, education of young people today, with, with exceptions, there are some outstanding private schools, a few outstanding public schools, but the education is uh, today is horribly deficient in mathematics, uh, in science, uh, in history, language, you name it. And that is something that did not exist 50 years ago because we had a reservoir of, of young men and women, mostly young men at the time, who had received a, obviously an education sufficient to do the job that President Kennedy put before us. There were over 400,000 Americans involved in Apollo. Only 50,000 of them worked for NASA. And, uh, and they were part, in part what we call the Sputnik generation. They were young people who decided that they were excited to buy rockets and by engineering and making those rockets and launching them. Uh, one of the better books uh, is, uh, is The October Skies. It describes uh, a uh, high school, some high school boys that decided to make rockets. And uh, the original title of that book, by the way, was Rocket Boys. <laughs> yeah, in the anagram, they switched the letters around. <laughs> Same letters, but yeah. different title. Yeah. yeah. And uh, an excellent movie, by the way. Mm -hmm. We're talking about movies. But uh, you know, the level of preparedness of uh, young people today is just abysmal compared to what is going to be required of them in the future. What and the uh, public education system just can't handle it right now. I was going to ask, what do you see as opportunities? And what could we put forward to those young students that might inspire them and get them to be interested in, in STEM careers, right? So, well, so what opportunities are that you could say, hey, look, you could do this, but you're going to need some math and some science? I, I think hands-on, exciting projects is absolutely essential. That's really what we did with the astronaut training program. Mm -hmm. We gave them hands-on uh, things that, excited, that were much more exciting than just show and tell, you know, a lecture. A long time ago, I proposed to the Boy Scouts, with no effect, that they have a, uh, a part of their uh, Explorer Scout program be uh, Space Scouts. Mm. And, uh, and I tried to get NASA then to offer the opportunity through some kind of a uh, selection process for some scouts to fly mm -hmm. to the space station. And this was before there was a space station. <laughs> Uh, when we still thought we were going to have uh, Skylab-like stations. But uh, I, I, the main thing, I think, young people, you have to develop things that they can't avoid being excited about. Right. <laughs> well, you're a crew member, uh, uh, Commander Cernan uh, apparently would often say that he thought it would be wonderful to see a teenager fly into space as a way to engage people. Well, that's not always uh, financially possible or, or uh, has, carries a number of risks, but what you're describing sounds like involving students in training like an astronaut or doing simulations or engaging them in real science like uh, Dr. Calvin does with spectrometers. Are those the kinds of activities that you would recommend? Yeah, I, 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 you never know what's going to excite a, a young person. Mm -hmm. 
I know the uh, the space camp down mm -hmm. in Huntsville uh, does a, I think a good job mm -hmm. from what I understand in that and in in getting people excited. Uh, and, but at the same time, they need to begin to understand why it's important to know more than they know right now, and particularly in math, but also in other areas. And, and do, you, do you see that as part of your legacy, is to have been a human example of somebody on the moon to be inspiring in that way? Here's a, here's a person as opposed to just a, a lunacod robot driving around. Do you think that's an important piece of that? Uh, inspiration? Well, I think it's important. I think it's what, what we astronauts can do and do do, we uh, have done through the last 50 years, is to uh, uh, try to have outreach to the public. And, and, and it, it works fairly well. If a reasonably well uh, publicized event with an astronaut usually uh, oversells, like tonight. Like tonight. And uh, the uh, uh, but it's it's a may unfortunately be a drop in the bucket of what has to be done. You can't uh, you just can't reach everyone, and, and certainly can't reach all the students that need help. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for coming here to the University of Nevada Reno, for coming to the planetarium, and for helping us all learn more about uh, the moon and our place in space. We really appreciate the honor of having you here. Well, thank you. It was great to get the invitation. I'm looking forward to more interaction. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. Godspeed to crew of Apollo 17. Uh, Roger, Dino. Thank you very much.